For our scripture reading this morning, will you turn with me, if you so desire, to Isaiah chapter 62. We're going to read the entire chapter together. You can find it on page 1159 in your Bibles, if you wish to follow along. Isaiah chapter 62. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet, till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah in your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and his by, by his mighty arm, and never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies. And never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your Savior comes. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. This is the word of the Lord. Excellent. We're going to talk about delight, God's delight in us, his affection for us today. But before we get there, I, I want to start with something else. Hello, my name is... How would you answer that? Not your real name, but the name that people kind of playfully call you, or a name that your parents joyfully call you, or a sibling calls you. Now, I recognize some of these names might not be names you can repeat in the sanctuary. I have been introduced to Canadian terms of endearment. 
There are, there are languages that we use and, and we develop names. So I want you to think just for a moment, what are those names that people use for you that are not actually your name? It can be a nickname. So just think for a minute about that. So I have one that was used for a couple years, and I may have told this story before, I don't remember, but I once worked in a youth treatment facility, and I'd love to think that this nickname came because of the prowess I showed on the, on the company's softball team, being able to hit the ball and, and throw the ball with precision. But I got the nickname of Stinger. I came into my office one day, and, and there, instead of my name, was a new name label, Stinger. Like, yes! But the story behind it isn't so yes. You see, I was responsible for training the staff in all sorts of ways, including how to use EpiPins. And I took an EpiPin trainer, or so I thought, out of the box, and, and I was demonstrating to the new staff how to use it, and I slammed it down on the book that was on my lap and the needle went right through it into my leg. <laughs> I stung myself with an EpiPen. So the staff gave me that nickname of Stinger. So every time I heard Stinger, hey Stinger, hey Stinger, there was a little bit of, okay, I get it, I'll laugh at myself. But there was a little bit of, ooh, my mistake has been shoved in front of my face. <laughs> Anybody else have that? You get a nickname or some way uh, people refer to you that kind of gets at both a playfulness, but it's also a sense of brokenness with it. Maybe some of us have actually had those names that aren't playful at all. They're pretty painful. They expose parts of our lives that we would rather forget. You see, the people of Israel, as we enter this text, are in a place where they have, heard, they have heard promises of God, but they have experienced failure and brokenness again and again. They've been dragged out of their land, and if you listen closely to this text, they've even been given names like desolate. They've been given names like despised one. They've been given those names that, that don't build them up, but actually tear them down. There are people whose, whose names and the labels that are sitting on them only point out their shame and their sorrow and their brokenness. We've just come through a stretch. It, it's important to recognize that because we've just come through a stretch of, of Scripture leading up to this one that Len read today that has all sorts of promises for God. But when you're covered in shame and you've learned helplessness over a couple generations, it's incredibly hard to believe the promises. There's a, a certain callousness that sits on the heart and, and a, certain, a certain protection of yourself that, that almost develops into a scoffing. Yeah, right, God. Land's flowing with milk and honey. Those aren't there anymore. Those are only legends from the past somewhere. Have you seen our reality? I mean, just a couple chapters before this, God talks about giving them gold and giving them all sorts of precious metals instead of the, the wood and the dirt that they found themselves in. 
and he talks about building up their kingdom. And even in this text, he says that no longer will, will foreigners take the crops that you have raised. Had to bring that up again, huh? We're the people who everybody else steals our crops. Number of times in Israel's history, they, it talks about how other nations around them raided them at harvest time and would come repeatedly at harvest time and go through their fields and take everything away. That the people would be left with nothing. Many times had they felt that God had abandoned them, had left them alone. They hear the message of God's love. But the experience of the reality was so far from it, they had a hard time believing it. Mother Teresa once said this, The greatest disease in the West today is not TB or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. We in the West who tend to have access to more resources can cover up that loneliness or find multiple ways that at least we can try to cover up that loneliness and that emptiness and that sense of being unloved and unwanted. But the reality is that the deepest need any one of us have is that, that need to be loved, to, be, to know that someone else loves us, to know that the one who created us loves us. And that was Israel's need. So we enter a text where God is recognizing that need. He's recognizing that very human need for us to be loved and to know that God loves us despite what else is going on, despite what has been done to us and what we have done to others, despite all our failings, that in the presence of all of that, that we would hear that God loves us. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. If you look back through the, the text of Isaiah, back to the beginning, there's a whole lot of times where God speaks out and says, for my sake, I'm going to do this. And it is words of judgment. God has been calling Israel to account and even calling the nations around them to account and continually saying again, for my sake, I'm going to do this so that people will recognize my name and my glory will fill the earth. God's people had to be tired of hearing about what's going to be done for God's sake because it often meant their suffering. It often meant their struggling. It often meant their judgment. And here, here God continues something. He started in Isaiah 40 where, where he said, Comfort, comfort my people. Tell my people their sins have been paid for and double. They've more than paid for. Comfort them because I'm going to watch over them. Comfort them because I have not forgotten them. Comfort them because I'm coming to rescue them. Comfort them because I desire them. 
And God returns to that here in that passage. And instead of saying, for my sake, he turns his affection and attention straight on his people. And he says, for your sake. Because I see what you need. Because I know how you have suffered. I know the pain you have experienced. I know how you have felt my absence. I am coming for you. And I am coming for you to the point that I will assure you I am going to make your light shine. I'm going to build you up again. He continues, The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. And we might race over this text. We might just keep going right into the next one. But it's important for us to pause at this gift This gift of a new name, it has a pattern and a history in Scripture. Do you remember Abram? Abram, that guy who wandered in the wilderness a little bit and and made his way trying to follow God. And and when God gives him the promises and says, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bless you and the nations will be blessed for you. And he changes his name to Abraham, father of of peoples father of the nations. God gives a new name that reflects the character and role that God plans for the people. It reflects his care for them. Remember Jacob? Jacob means deceiver. Jacob the deceiver who runs from God again and again, who encounters God in many ways and still struggles to live and follow in God's ways. Jacob the deceiver gets down and wrestles with the angel of the Lord. And at the end of that, he's given a new name. A name that doesn't mean deceiver, but Israel. God is the one who helps. God's helper. God coming to him. Giving him that new name. In Israel's history, that giving of the new name plays a role in marking the people at a significant turning point. Of marking that point when when God's faithfulness starts to become sight. It's no longer trusting in the midst of God's absence. It's that point where they start to see God's faithfulness displayed in their lives. And here, while the people are in exile, while they are far off from the promised land, God is saying to them, I have come to you and I'm giving you a new name. A name that is marked by my love. You know what that new name is here? No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. Hephzibah, my delight is in her. Imagine if that would... Hello, my name is, my delight is in her. I mean, imagine that just for, for a moment, that, that you go through, through this, this way of living life and, and you've, you've been weighed down because your reputation and the way people look at you is, that's a desolate person. That's a wasted person. That's a person nobody wants anymore. And all of a sudden, you get this new name of someone who delights in you. The Lord. The maker, the God who's made you, delights in you. You are one who is delighted in. 
Anybody feel delighted? Anyone feel that love of someone else delighting in them? That's the gift God is giving to his people who are weary and tired. He's giving them the gift of a new name that they are now the people, the people he delights in. Other prophets, some operating at the same time, had a similar message. Zephaniah extends this a little bit, playing with the same type of imagery, but Zephaniah frames it this way. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. Remember, this is while the people are in exile, while they feel that God has abandoned them. These prophets are saying the same message to them. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Has anyone ever been serenaded? I mean, that's really what it's saying. God is so enamored with you. God is so desiring you that he shows up at your doorstep to serenade you, to sing over you. It can feel awkward when someone starts singing over you. All right? I'm not going to do it because I, I don't necessarily have the best singing voice, but, but it would be really awkward if someone just walked up to you and started singing over you. You might not know what to do, right? You get a little flushed in the cheeks, a little embarrassed, a little excited as well. Someone's paying this much attention to me? Someone actually cares about me. Someone, someone is actually full of joy because of me. Someone can't stop smiling when they see me. That's the type of image this text is using. That God has permagrin when he looks at us. He can't stop smiling. He's taking delight in us and rejoicing over us. The Isaiah 62 passage includes that language as well, that the Lord will rejoice over us. He has permagrin when he thinks about us. God delights in us. So often we live with these images of our failure and our sin, and we assume from that that the only image of God is a God who is angry with us. But if we listen, if we listen to Scripture carefully, we hear again and again these messages of a God who actually delights in us, who takes pleasure in looking at us, who loves us, even though he knows every bit of our brokenness, even the parts of ourselves that we can't face. And we have a God who says, I see you and I love you and I'm going to sing over you. Scripture tells us that he loves us so much he actually wants to be with us. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God who could have stayed at a distance. God who could have wiped 
destroyed us, God who could have gotten rid of us and started all over, said instead, I'm going to enter in and I'm going to show up into the midst of your suffering and your pain with you because I want to be with you. I don't want to be separated from you. I want to be with you in the midst of what you're going through and, and in, in through that and joining you in the midst of that, I want to make a way so that you can be with me forever. What we celebrate tomorrow in Jesus' birth and what we look forward to in Jesus' return is the reality of a God who loves us so much that he refuses to be separated from us forever. He enters in to our brokenness and takes it on himself and says, I love you enough to take your suffering as my own. I love you enough to enter death so that you don't have to. I love you enough to overcome death so that you might have life forever. We'll talk about it a little bit tomorrow morning. That Revelation 21 passage where it says that the Lord will dwell with us and we will dwell with him the culmination of Scripture, the culmination of, of Christ's redemptive work is no more separation between us and God, but that God actually lives with us and moves in with us. It's an extension of the incarnation of Jesus being born, of God tenting in our midst and saying, I'm going to live here with you. The fullness of God's promise is that God will live with us. Philip Yancey, writing about what's so amazing about grace, says this, Occasionally, all too occasionally, I sense the truth of grace. There are times when I study the parables and grasp that they are about me. I am the sheep that the shepherd has left the flock to find, the prodigal for whom the father scans the horizon, the servant whose debt has been forgiven. I am the beloved of God. Just before Jesus enters the scene, there's, there's a relative of his who was born. And he's given the name John. And, and when you read that story and, and the naming of him, you realize that the people around didn't want to name him that. His mother said his name's to be John. And they said, but there's no one in your family named John. And he's given this name. And the father, Father Zechariah, whose mouth's been shut since bef just before the time that, that John was conceived, asks for something to write on. And he writes, his name is John. And the moment he writes it, his mouth is open. And he's able to sing this praise. And, and all the people are in wonder. But you know what John means? Beloved. The one who is to make the way for the coming of the Messiah is given the name Beloved. Beloved by God. The context is not that there is a wrathful God coming to punish you. The context is that God has sent his beloved to come and reconcile us and draw us back to himself. God has sent Jesus Christ that we might understand through him that we are God's beloved. We are the ones he has come to seek and find. We are the ones he has come to make a home with. We are God's beloved. Yancey goes on in the same section to ask this. What would it mean, I ask myself, if I came to the place where I saw my primary identity in life as the one who Jesus loves? 
Hello, my name is the one who Jesus loves. That is our identity. That is what God is communicating to us through Jesus' birth and through the promise of his return. That we are his children, the ones whom Jesus loves. As was read, I think Nathan read it during the, during the candle lighting, that passage from 1 John 3. See how great the love of the Father, the love the Father has lavished on us, that we might be called children of God. It's what we are. God's beloved. Let's pray. We are caught off guard. And we don't really know how to respond to you, Lord. A God who sings over us. A God who delights in us. A God who wants to draw near to us and be with us, not once we've cleaned up, but in order to, to walk with us in the midst of our mess. A God who doesn't forsake us, but draws near to us. We are blown away. It's almost too good to be true, Lord, that you love us this much, that you sent your Son to live among us, to die for us, to to rise for us, to unite us to yourself. Thank you for your love in Jesus Christ. Help us to see that you have given us a new name, that we are the ones you delight in, the ones you love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.